I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Turn to chapter 1 and chapter 24, the beginning and the end of Luke 24. There is a common thinking in the modern age that assumes that the ancient world was naive, uneducated, and therefore more inclined to believe in the resurrection than we are. Okay, there is in our age of technological advancement a pride and a haughtiness that says, yes, yes, that was good for them and they were more inclined to believe that, but we're sophisticated, well-educated, degreed Americans. And those kind of people don't buy stuff like this. And I want to I challenge you and say that the world that we live in, based on the historical documents, is no more skeptical than the ancient world. And can I say this? No more intellectually sophisticated than the ancient world. Most of our education systems and theories were developed a long time before you and I were alive. And before the textbooks that you studied were written, there were intellectually sophisticated, highly intelligent people. And they lived in the first century, and some of them lived in a place called Palestine. And they saw something that changed everything. They experienced something that altered the trajectory of their life forever. The claims of Christianity in the first century were seen as implausible and impossible. The early church was not likely, out of naivety, to embrace it because they were so incredibly desperate. It's not what happened. Many think that the old world was friendly to claims such as, He is risen. But it is, in fact, not true. Which leads us to a question. Why did the early church believe in the resurrection in a way that radically transformed and changed everything about their lives. Because they were skeptical. They didn't see the resurrection as plausible. But those that knew about it and believed in it lived a life that was effectively changed and altered for the rest of their lives. So strongly that in Rome, if you go back and you study the history, you'll find that during the things that we study in history called the plagues, do you know who stayed in, during the time of the plagues in the Roman Empire? There were people that fled the cities to preserve their own lives. They literally ran for their life. Just like on 9-11. There were people that ran in to do something. Knowing full well the risks that were involved for honor. And in Rome, at the start of the early church, when the plagues hit, there were people who ran for their lives from the city. And then there were people that stayed. It should be no surprise to you if you are intellectually and historically astute. You know from history that the people that stayed were Christians. To the shock of the ancient historians as those secular writers record their lives and their death. They marveled that they stayed when they could have run for their life. They stayed and paid the ultimate price 
to comfort people who were certainly going to die. And we would think, in our American self-protective way of thinking, what a waste. But you have to ask the question, who would do something like that? Who would stay knowing that it would cost them their lives? And the answer is this. People that knew that death was not the end. People who had seen or were convinced based on the historical document, documents of the New Testament, particularly the historical narratives of Matthew through the book of Acts. They knew that there was an account of the life of a man historically verifiable with up to 500 witnesses based on 1 Corinthians 15 who saw the resurrected Lord and who had passed that on to their children and their grandchildren. And they now were the converts to Christianity based upon the truth of the resurrection who were willing to lay down their lives knowing that that would not be the end. The question that you have to ask as you read through the New Testament, as you read the claims about the resurrection is this. Why did people believe in the resurrection? Now you can make the argument that because they were naive and they thought it plausible or somewhat possible, you can make the argument that they so, and this is what the liberals say, by the way, if you go to a liberal seminary, this is what you will hear, okay? If you, I was looking on Bishop Spong's website recently. Don't go there, okay? But in there, he talks about, really, the resurrection is a bit of a motif about victory. It's not a real event. This guy is head in the Episcopal Church in the Northeast, okay? It's, it's not something to happen. It's just a nice story that if you believe it, it's going to help you. And the argument goes like this. The disciples so wanted to believe in the resurrection that they, they hallucinated it, they willed it into being. But that doesn't help me understand why they were willing to die for the cause. Create a lie and die for it. Less plausible than the resurrection itself. And it is, it is fascinating as you begin to study through the New Testament documents and you ask yourself the question, why did these people then believe in a way that radically altered their lives? I think Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 help us with understanding the answer to that question. It says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Meaning, they weren't in it for personal gain. They were servants of the word. Therefore, Luke says to Theophilus, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, as a doctor, he was a medical doctor, Luke, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, which probably means that he was a highly educated and highly sophisticated man in his culture who needed evidence. And so when Luke writes, what is Luke doing? He is giving him evidence of what happened and why it changed Luke's life. To answer the questions that would rise in the, cent in the mind of a first century skeptic. He says, Theophilus, I have sat down to write you an account so that you may know, and I want you to listen to this, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What is Luke saying? Luke's saying, I'm going to write for you a historically verifiable narrative in the first century that chronicles the life of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, I know this this morning. I know that there are probably people who have come in because Easter is kind of something you should do, right? It's probably the most well-attended day in church during the year. It's the right thing to do. 
but I want to level with you. I know there are some of you who are here who are skeptics. You're not sure. And that's okay. Okay, what I want to do for you this morning, speak to you from the text. If you know Christ, I want to build up your faith. I want to solidify the foundation of your faith in Christ. All right, based on the evidence that is present in Scripture that helps us to see that the first century disciples who laid down their life for the cause of Christ, every one of them to a man, that every one of them did it for a reason that was substantial and historically verifiable in their lifetime. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if you want to ask, verse 4, there are 500 people that saw the resurrected Christ. You would not say that if you couldn't go check. But he said it. I want to look at three ideas. First, our responses to the resurrection in light of the responses of the first century church to the resurrection. I'm going to give you two responses. One response is the response of outright rejection. I don't believe it can happen. Therefore, I will stand in the way of it happening. The second response is this, and I think this is probably something that all of us from time to time wrestle with, persistent skepticism. Got any of them in your life? Persistent skeptics. You may be sitting here saying, do I got one in my life? I got one in the mirror. Okay? Sometimes we wrestle. Sometimes you need to go back to the Word and be honest. Be honest before God with the questions you have. There are no bad questions. There may be bad attitudes. There aren't bad questions. If they are honest and sincere, ask the question. Go to God like the man does in the Gospels. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Okay? The text is written to convince Theophilus of the truthfulness of these things. Theophilus, read the story. That's what Luke is saying. Most excellent Theophilus. Beautiful, beautiful statement. The rejection, the, the response of outright rejection to the resurrection. It's given by a man named Peter, who you know very, very well. And I'm going to read you the account of Peter's response. After calling the disciples to a cost-counting, Christ-following life in Matthew 16, he says this to the disciples. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must, that is, he is duty-bound to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Meaning, at the hands of the religious establishment, Jesus Christ will suffer a brutal, substantial death. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, I want you to imagine something. You're the disciples. You left your nets, and you know the story. They left their nets and their dad and followed him. That's you. Now the one you're following looks at you and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to die. Yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Understand first century thinking. Peter was called Simon the Zealot. You know what that means? That means someone who lived with the ambitions of seeing Roman government, Caesar, overthrown and Israel independent again. That was the thinking. So the guy you place your hopes in who can raise the dead, who can feed 5,000 and 4,000 and heal organic miracles, heal people. You start looking at him and say, you know what? If I had an army that was hungry, it would be pretty good to have a guy that could take five loaves and two fishes and feed the whole army. That would work. And if someone gets shot, just go over and touch him and say, back to life. Come on. Get out there. But see, I'd, that's the guy I'd follow. That's the guy the disciples were following. 
And he just said to them, oh, by the way, I'm going to die. You know what Peter's response is? And I would love to see this. I said it this morning. I'd love to see that on video. Peter grabs Jesus. This is what the text says. It says, <clears throat> Peter took him aside. And remember, he's Simon the Zealot. He's the one that's saying what all the other disciples are thinking. He takes him aside and began to rebuke him. And in the Greek, I remember this, this is in the imperative mode. He repeatedly struck out against the thinking of Christ. He could not tolerate the thought of Christ dead. Why? It doesn't happen. People don't die and come back from the dead. Do you understand in the first century that there were many alleged messiahs who came on the scene promising to give redemption and deliverance to the nation of Israel in a social kind of way? That they would set them free militarily and socially. There were many that came on the scene who got a following of insurrectionists and then at the hands of the Roman government were put to death. And guess what? Two thoughts. None of them ever rose from the dead. Secondly, none of them ever thought of promising to their followers that, oh, by the way, when I die, I'll be back. Never. You know why? Because it would have sounded what? It would have sounded absolutely absurd and implausible and impossible. And so when Jesus said it, what's Peter's response? Peter's response is, listen to what he, listen to what he says. Because this gets Peter the get behind me Satan. Here's what he says. He says, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And if you take together all the gospels that record this account, here's the way it's stated. Peter is saying to Jesus, over my dead body, I'll let you die. Because you are no good to us dead. That's what Peter means. So the first response to the prophecy in the part of Jesus, his prophetic word, they're going to kill me, I will rise on the third day. You can count on it, you can mark it down. Peter's response is, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. That doesn't happen. And no one has ever even in historical documents made such a claim, except Christ, which begs the question. If you make that promise, you are either one of two things. You are the most amazing, powerful creature in the universe, or you're a total fraud and a liar. You're delusioned, you're crazy. You see, folks, you can't divide Jesus up and say, I just wanted to be a good teacher. No, you can't do that because this is what he taught. So either he is delusional and a liar who didn't raise from the dead, or he is the one who rose and conquered the grave as we saw. That's who he is. Peter's response, first response of a skeptical mind to the promise of the resurrection. A dead conqueror is of no benefit to us because death is final. He did not see how death could fit into the plan of Christ. The second response that's given by a number of people in the Gospels is persistent skepticism. I want you to look at Luke chapter 24 with me as we just ease our way into this text for a couple of minutes. Persistent skepticism. Found first in the people that first go to the grave. Luke 24 and verse 1. Here's what the text says. On the first day of the week, which was Sunday three days after the crucifixion, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Question. What was the purpose of spices in the New Testament economy at death? What was it? It was embalming. It was to prepare the body for a permanent burial. The women heard Jesus talk about his resurrection. Guess what? They didn't buy it. They were persistently skeptical. 
They're not going to find a resurrected Lord. They're going to prepare a body for decomposition in a permanent sense. Notice what they say. They go very early in the morning. They took the spices. Verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb and said, Oh, he must be risen. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They entered and did not find the body of the Lord. And they said, oh, he, it happened. No. While they were wondering about this, they were trying to figure out what could that mean. They had been told what it means, but it doesn't happen. So what do you do? And you know the stories that emerged in the first century. Early on, somebody stole the body. We don't, and here's what they say. They go, we don't know where they've laid him. Folks, do you, do you understand how this happens to us? God makes promises to us, and we are persistently skeptical and unbelieving. And he, leave, he, just, he just trashes you, right? No, you know what he does? He persists with you, and he helps you, and he meets you where you are. And in this account, I just love this. In the midst of their baffled understanding, the text says, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why are you looking for a dead man or a living man amongst the dead? Why are you looking for life in a tomb? Well, because that's where they put him. That's the logical answer. They didn't even have to write that answer in the text. It was obvious. They came with spices. You don't put spices on a living person. I love this. And then he says, he is not here. He has risen some of the texts say, just as he said. And then they say, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then what happens? Then they're like, sorry, God. Then they're like, okay, it makes sense. He's not here. He is, in fact, risen from the dead. They go running back to where the disciples are gathered. And by the way, historical note, if you were writing a historical document to prove that the resurrection happened when it really didn't, you would never call women as witnesses. Sorry, ladies, in the first century, you didn't count. You would, if you were writing propaganda to get people to believe something that never occurred, you would never cite the testimony of women. It was not even admissible in Roman courts. Which will help you to understand how radical the New Testament understanding of women in church life really is. Okay, it is liberating. They go back, verse 11 of Luke 24. Notice what it says. Verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told these things to the 11, Judas minus, and to all the others, the other followers. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But the apostles said, we knew it was going to happen. We believed before you did. Is that the response of the apostles? What's the text say? But they did not believe the women. Okay, ladies, this is not something new, okay? What you're dealing with at home is not new, okay? Because their words, okay, now here's the apostles who sacrificed everything to follow Christ. They, they come and say, the one you followed, he said he would be alive, and he is alive. They would not believe them. Why? Because it sounded to them like what? Nonsense. It sounded implausible and impossible. They didn't buy it. Peter, 
Peter runs to the tomb. You know what he finds? He finds an empty grave. And Peter finds his skepticism confronted. Verse 11. Verse 12, I'm sorry. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away saying, he is risen. No, he went away wondering to himself, what could that mean? Which is amazing. That is amazing. Why? They were skeptical. They needed proof. They needed evidence. And then they come back to the 12. Two are on the road to Emmaus, verse 13 of Luke 24. They encounter Christ in a way that Christ veils his presence so that they can enjoy the process of discovery. He engages them on the road and I said, what are you guys so bummed out about? They look at him and they say, are you, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened this weekend? We were following a man who claimed to be God. He was amazing. He performed miracles. He raised the dead. He said he would restore the kingdom. But three days ago he died. And our hopes died with him. And Jesus then says to them in his veiled state, slow of heart to believe all that is written in the prophets, that the son must die and be buried and raised again on the third day. Exact quotation from Christ. Those words ring. Then they get to the end of their walk and Jesus is about to go on past the house and they grab him and say, hey, would you mind eating with us? He comes into the house to eat with them. And as they're eating, he breaks the bread and when he extends his hand, what do they see? They see the wounds. And like that, he's gone. They look at each other and say, when he was talking to us, didn't you find your skepticism being trampled and hope rising? Here's the words they use in the King James. Did not our hearts burn within us? You know what burning is? Burning is hope. That what I want can actually come to pass. I was telling the people earlier this morning, oh, I feel I need to keep saying that because I'm preaching twice, so it's weird. I said this earlier. Uh, I go to the gym to work out. I'm very skeptical about my hopes. Okay? There, there are some really big men out there. I, I said to the one guy, I said, you, you're scary. So I, I want you to be my friend. This one guy went up to me and I said, I said, you're not lifting for sports because you're too serious. He said, I'm a captain in the army. I said, I knew it. And this guy's like, unbelievable. I said, I, thank you for your service. I don't have any illusions. I'm a complete skeptic about ever, okay? I'm not even lifting for that purpose. I'm just lifting to stay in shape, okay? I have no illusions. I am very skeptical. I think it implausible and impossible that I'll ever look like that, okay? Because I know what I'm starting with, okay? <laughs> my eyes are open, okay? When I look in the mirror, I see the same thing all the other people in the gym see. So I, I, I have now tried to go when no one's there, okay? Because I know that's not even realistic, okay? So I'm just go at my own time with my own kind of people, okay? That we... We have our time at the gym, okay? I'm skeptical about my hopes in that regard. I just think it's in, in, not, not probable. The early disciples of Christ thought that the resurrection was unlikely. And when they heard word about it, do you understand this? They wanted it to be true because they wanted Christ back. And that's why the words like, it sounded like nonsense to them. It 
they were wondering about it. What, what do, in the grave of a man who worked miracles and in fact himself raised the dead, what do empty linen cloths mean? You don't have a lot, of, a lot of possible answers to that question. Either he rose from the dead or somebody stole his body. But the Roman guards were guarding the tomb and it was sealed. You open the grave under pain of death. And so this grace of God begins to work to show the disciples to, to shatter the skepticism that they're dealing with. When he, in verse 36 through verse 34 of, of, of Luke 24, look at these verses with me. Start in verse 33. It says, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven. This is the two on the road to Emmaus. With, and those with them, uh, they were assembled together, saying, it is true that the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized when he broke bread. And the disciples said, great, it happened. No. Folks, you know what it's like when you have great news and you tell someone, they just look at you in absolute disbelief. Like, what am I going to do with you? Remember how Jesus says, slow of heart to believe. He wants to shatter the skepticism in your life and set you free from the fear of it so that he can use your life for his glory. He wants you to get past the fear of sharing your faith with people because they're going to think your faith highly unlikely, unsophisticated, naive, and implausible. And you don't want them to think that about you. And neither did the disciples. And in his grace, what does he do? He, he comes to them, verse, 30, uh, verse 36. Listen to this. While they were still dialoguing about whether or not it was plausible. I love this. Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Which he had said to them many times. And all the disciples stood up and said, We knew you were alive. We're so glad to see you. No, what's the text say? It says, they were frightened with fear and thought that he was what? You're a hallucination. This doesn't have, this is what, what it is. It's not likely. It's, they're first century people, folks. If you think the people of our generation are more sophisticated and more unlikely to be skeptical about the resurrection than they were in the first century, you've never read the historical documents. They did not believe. In his grace, what does God do? God moves to give them amazing proof. They're startled thinking they saw a ghost. He says to them, why are you troubled? Why? This is a rebuke. Stop being troubled. Stop letting doubts come in your mind. This is the problem with listening to yourself as opposed to speaking the truth of God to yourself. This is the danger of letting the evil one haunt your life with lies when the Spirit of God is speaking into you truth. The Spirit of God wants to drive skepticism out of our lives. He wants to set us free in a boldness and in filling of the Spirit, Acts 1.8. That's what He wants us to experience in light of the resurrection. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead will raise your mortal bodies also. That's Christian hope. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. This is to me amazing. There's the disciples and we don't buy it. You've you got to be a ghost. You've got to be something. He shows them the scars in his hands. They still don't buy it. And then what does he do? Look at my hands and my feet. 
It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and blood as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still, listen to this, did not believe it. I mean this to comfort you this morning. Okay? Let the truth that they struggled comfort you in your struggle. But don't stay there. Also hear the rebuke. He said, well, I wrestle with my belief. I don't, I have questions. I, you're in good company. You're in really good company. And then he says this. He's like, they really don't get it. Do you have something to eat? A ghost is asking for something to eat. Okay, the hallucination, the apparition has asked for something to eat. Get him some bread. He takes the bread and he eats it. And in his gracious way, he takes it and eats it in their presence. And then he says to them, this is what I, I would love to hear Christ's tone here. You know, I want to say it strong. I, I assume a gentle Savior. Speaking soothing words. And just let this, let this settle in. Everything must be fulfilled, brothers. That is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Folks, here's something that to me is so incredibly encouraging from the perspective of apologetics. Jesus Christ did not appear on the scene and create a storyline. Jesus came in the middle of a storyline that started being written 1,500 years before his life at the hand of Moses. He didn't come and start something like Buddha did. He did not come and start something like Muhammad did. He is more than a prophet. He came to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Do you remember when John the Baptist sent word to say, would you please find out, I sacrificed my life for him, would you please find out if he is the Christ? You know what Jesus says? Tell him, the lame walk, the blind see, the cripple have their legs given. He goes on, what is he doing? He's quoting from the Old Testament. Why? Because that's him. He wants them to understand that there is substantial reasons to believe. And then he layers in Psalm 16 later in the book of Acts. You will not let your Holy One undergo decay. That is the exact text that Stephen picks up to prove to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead was in fact a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He didn't just appear in the middle of a story he, or, or in, in, in time, just out of nowhere. He appeared in a storyline that was historically validated and verifiable. That's the Savior you trust. He means to strengthen your faith. He means to shatter your skepticism. And for his disciples, he would not, here's the thing that comes out, he would not tolerate their persistent skepticism and unbelief. And he aims in this text to destroy it, and he annihilates it. And they are forever changed. 1 Corinthians 15.5, the Apostle Paul is so bold in this regard as to say that after the resurrection, verse 5, that Jesus showed himself to 500 verifiable witnesses during Paul's lifetime. If you're doubting the resurrection, here's what Paul's saying. You can shatter your skepticism by going and talking to the eyewitnesses that saw him alive. Why is Paul saying that? Because the first century tended to be skeptical in the same way that we are. You don't live in a different world than the disciples did. In the same power of God that confronted the disciples and proved to them the power and glory of the resurrection is alive and well in our day through the indwelling and presence of His Spirit. He wants to shatter your skepticism. He will meet you with you are because He is he's bold, but He is also kind and patient with His disciples here. It jumps out. 
but he will not tolerate their unbelief. That's why he says to them, you are slow of heart to believe. Come on. That's what he's saying to them. Now, two other thoughts real quick. The impact of the resurrection. So what, if, if I get past the skepticism and the outright objection and rejection of it and to it, what's going to happen in my life? Folks, I want to make this very, very clear. Met a lady at Dunkin' Donuts on Friday morning. She's a lady that works behind the counter. She knows I'm a pastor. They're starting to realize that now because I sit there with the Bible for three hours in the morning <laughs> with my laptop. And they're wondering, what? And I, here's, I'll give you a funny thing. I know the people that walk in that door are thinking, he's one of those. One of those weird people, okay? Sitting in public with the Bible. She said this to me on Friday morning. She said, this is a very emotional day. I'm like, why? Well, because he died on this day. And on Sunday he rose again. And this whole weekend is very emotional. She's a very interesting lady. Starting to get to know her a little bit. Folks, can I say something to you? It is emotional. But emotions will not change the trajectory of your life. For the disciples, it was more than emotion. Something happened that they knew about that forever altered the trajectory of their life. The claim of the resurrection was fulfilled in their eyes. And they built their lives on something that not only satisfied them and gave them joy, it actually changed them. But see, that's why during the plagues, the Christians stayed. It's why they didn't run for their lives. The resurrection of Christ had actually affected their life in terms of its substance. It really change them the question I have for you this morning is this has it changed you have you let the truth of the resurrection of Christ that I personally believe is historically undeniable see here's what you're left with if you don't accept the argument of the New Testament the historical documents the eyewitness documents for why the early church took off and grew so powerfully you are left in a place where you have to come up with an alternate explanation. And the alternate explanation is, well, they just sort of believed that he actually did. It didn't really happen. Because here's what you have. You have a movement that people sacrifice their lives for that goes on and on to our day. And you have to say, well, that's just, it's emotionally satisfying to people. It works for them, and that's why they believe. Okay? I challenge you to do this. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And tell me that the Apostle Paul became a Christian because, you know what? It was a better life for him. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a wealthy man. He had the privilege of the highest degree of education. He was a Jew and Roman by birth. An enviable set of credentials. And in Acts chapter 9, he met a man who changed his life. And the change in his life happened in a personal encounter that struck him to the ground and caused this powerful leader of the Jews to say, Who are you, Lord? You know what he saw? He saw what he was trying to destroy. You read through Acts, Acts 26, when he's giving his defense before Agrippa with Felix sitting there. Okay, they are the kings. They are like the ultimate supreme court. The ones who rule over whether or not Paul will live or die. They're the men. It's to them that Paul gives this powerful and fluid defense of the crosswork of Christ and of the hope of Christian resurrection. Before then, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, or 
Agrippa says to him, Paul, you're learning. After he's done giving this defense, your learning has made you mad. Here's what Paul says. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. And I bet he just loves saying that name. That's a weird name. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. And here's what he's saying. Festus, you know the truth. You know the truth and you're running from it because you don't want it to alter your life. You don't mind good emotions. You don't mind things that pick you up. But you don't want to tolerate something that confronts your being the king in your life. When Christ comes, folks, he does not come to play second fiddle. When he comes, he comes to rule. And his leadership and his authority was demonstrated by being raised from the dead. You go read Revelation 4 and Revelation 11. He is the lamb that was slain and is alive. Folks, I want to tell you something. If I'm ever doing a funeral, and somebody gets out of that casket, they got my attention. Okay? Whatever they say, I'm going to do it. Okay? What's fascinating is that the disciples are like, well, we're not sure. <laughs> Give me a break. Paul says, look, I am not insane. And now just think of this. He is standing there in shackles. Here's what people want to say. Liberals want to say this. People that are unbelievers and pure skeptics, they want to say, Paul became a Christian and worked for him. Here he is standing in shackles before Festus. Festus, I am a Christian. This is working out really well. I follow Christ because it's financially beneficial. It gives me prestige. It's absurd to think that there is any other explanation for the change in Paul's life and the incredible number of martyrs in the early church who gave their life because they knew that he, in fact, was alive. Folks, here's the challenge I give you. It's a challenge that Paul gave to Festus in Acts chapter 26. He says, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I just love this. It's kind of boldness I would pray that God would give me. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am unconstrained. I am convinced that none of this has escaped your notice because it was not done in a closet. What's he saying? Agrippa, Felix, you want to know the truth? You can go find it. But are you willing to own him as Lord in your life? He does not come to play second fiddle. He comes to be Lord. That's ex- when Paul saw the resurrected Christ, you know what he said? My Lord. Thomas, uh, the last response to the resurrection, he's the one that all the stuff I talked about, the women, Peter, the other disciples, there's only one man that's not there, John chapter 20. His name is Thomas. The Bible says Thomas wasn't there when Jesus came and appeared to them. They're explaining it to Thomas. All of them. No, Thomas, he's alive. They saw him on the road to Emmaus. The lady saw the empty tomb and saw him raised. Peter talked to him. He appeared to all of us and we screeched. He said, you're a ghost. He said, no, not give me some bread. He ate the bread. He ate the bread, Thomas. You know what Thomas says? Pure skepticism. If I don't see his wounds in his hands and feet and put my finger in his side, I will not believe. Jesus picked a good group of men, didn't he? He's like, you got to be kidding me. All of them are saying it happened. He's like, I don't believe it. It's like a lot of us, isn't he? We want to be right. Jesus appears. And the other disciples are like, holy cow. Okay, let's let Thomas out there by himself. And Jesus singles out Thomas. He says, Thomas, go ahead. Reach forth your hand. Put your hand on my side. Thomas is like, no thanks. <laughs> he said, don't be a rebel, Thomas. You know what Thomas says? 
You are my Lord and my God. You have absolute sovereign right to dictate everything in my life. You see, folks, the resurrection is not meant to comfort you. It's not to give you an emotional weekend like that lady said. And I love this lady, but I was so irritated. It's so emotional. So is my coffee when it wakes me up. You know, just, a lot of things are emotional, but they don't, they don't change your life. The resurrection changed their lives. It's not about giving you comfort. It's not about you. It's about God wanting to use your life for his glory. You know, the other stuff is like, Thomas, God, say no now. <laughs> my Lord and my God. N.T. Wright has written a very powerful book that I would highly recommend to you called Rethinking the Resurrection. Probably one of the best scholarly documents on the resurrection of Christ written for skeptics. Here's what he says in light of the fact that the resurrection truth is not meant to comfort you. It is meant to alter the trajectory of your life. He said this, death is in fact the last weapon in the hand of the tyrant. And the point of the resurrection is that death has in fact been defeated Resurrection is not the redescription of the defeat of death. That's what Bishop Spong is saying. It is, the, it is its overthrow, and with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. Do you understand? Paul was standing before two kings, and he saw them as defeated. Felix and Agrippa, you're going down. You were defeated men, so I will not bow to you. And your threats will not drive me off the course of my life for Christ. I won't give up on it. I am convinced of this. And I will die for this. And you know better. Despite the sneers and slurs of contemporary scholars, it is those who believed in the bodily resurrection who were burned at the stake, who were thrown to lions. Resurrection was never a way of settling down and becoming respectable and comfortable. It was a way of changing you forever. Now, folks, a lot of us came to church today because it was the right thing to do. It's Easter Sunday. And so I preached you a message that's a little in your face. God wants to crush your skepticism. That's what he wants to do and it's what he aims to do. And when he starts to do it, you will not resist him. So maybe you're here this morning and you say, I have been a skeptic and I've never looked at the documents. I've only given you a smattering of evidence, a little. Not from the speculations of men, but from the first century eyewitness historical narratives that Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus. To give him the gift of skeptic breaking power in the word of God. Theophilus, I am writing this to you so that you can be assured. And friends, here's my prayer for you this morning, that you would go from here today saying, God, I am assured. But then I have this to say. Many of you, many of us, are silent about this truth. The word unforgivable comes to mind, but for the glory of, and grace of God, it's not. Sad? Oh yeah, it's very sad. Incredible that we would be silent about this. Yeah, that's amazing too. Why? Can I tell you why? The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
You know where you're silent about the resurrection? You don't, be a skeptic. you don't want skeptics to criticize you. Young people in high school, particularly college students, you know what you want? You want the respect of your professors and you will sacrifice your faith to get it. And it will not change you. He aims to change you. He wants to kill skepticism in your life and make you bold in his truth. I think it's Proverbs 26. It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. The righteous are bold as a lion. Those that know the truth of God's word and have allowed it to change them live a bold life in a skeptical world. Now, let me say this. The ancient world was skeptical, thought the resurrection implausible. That's the same world I live in, which means, which means, I can learn from the writings of the New Testament, old documents, to learn how to confront modern skepticism. Some of you this morning may need to go home and look in the mirror and say to yourself, that was for you. That was for you. I didn't settle what I was preaching on until probably 9 o'clock last night. That frustrates the daylights out of me. I have all these pages of notes all over my tablet. I don't want to preach it on this morning. This is the text that God solidified in my mind. Like, finally. <laughs> and I, I hate that. I hate that. I hate. Get your sermon written? Kind of. It's not all done. I don't know what, why God wanted this truth for you today. I don't know why. But I believe he did. And what I would encourage you to do is to go out of here saying, God, shatter my skepticism. Shatter my fear of skeptics. Because it's not fun to be disrespected in the classroom. It's not fun to be disrespected in your workplace. And I want to tell you something. It's not fun to be disrespected when I'm sitting at Dunkin' Donuts with my Bible and my laptop. I think about it. Because I'm that weak. People walk in and think, oh, they probably wonder what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, I'm that walk into the diner for men's Bible studies. I've been doing it for years. Your pastor is still self-conscious about that. Okay? I still think about it. I don't know that I'm that weak, okay? Or that I like that much, but I know what it is to face skeptics. You live in a world full of them. Do you have the courage to stand up and be counted and to pay the ultimate price? Because in his resurrection... Your greatest fear is death. That's your greatest fear. It's the worst thing anybody can do to you. Jesus said, don't fear him that can kill body and soul. Fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. That's what you need to fear today. Not people and what they can do. You need to fear the one who rose from the dead and offers you the hope of eternal life to the glory of his name. Father, as we close and sing a praise to you this morning, a beautiful praise that exalts the blood that flowed down on Calvary's cross to bear the price for my sin. We remember the words of 1 Peter 3.18. Christ, the Son of God, perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb, died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You, Lord Jesus, you, the just for the unjust, you stood in my place. You took the hit that I deserved to take and you bore my sin away. On the third day, you rose from the grave to authenticate and to validate your cross work. You are alive. You proved it to your disciples graciously and consistently and gently. You persisted against persistent skepticism to bring them to faith. And Lord, I trust this morning that for those that are here that are resisting the call of the gospel, that you would do the same for them this morning. 
you would shatter and crush their skepticism and give them the gift of faith. They might say this morning, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief.